is off until next week, or maybe happily, I'm not sure. <laughs> I get a grin on that. Uh, but there were some things that uh, have come to light in the last few days, and even particularly in the last 24 hours, that I think really are astounding, uh, that I want to address because I think they're good news and I think they indicate a move forward. We've been sitting for some time and uh, it has been somewhat frustrating and difficult to be patient and wait for God and we go through the motions, but He moves in His time to do that which He wills to do. His timing is always perfect to the moment. He knows exactly what He's doing at all times even though we may not. But he does give us clues, and in contemplating some things that we understand, and in some Bible study, as well as some exploration this week, I think some things have come to light that uh, have a great deal of bearing on where we are in terms of prophecy. Uh, I want to get into some historical things first, to lay background for what I have to say, uh, so bear with me. This will get, I think, more exciting the further we go instead of the opposite. Let me recite a little bit of history in terms of the church before I get into the scriptures. Uh, particularly at the moment, maybe some more later about uh, Worldwide, or Radio Church of God. But... The knowledge that we have that was disseminated in the Minor Prophet series and then built upon over the years began in January and February of 1996 when these things began to come to light. And then there was an even greater, perhaps, outpouring of understanding in a Passover of that time when the knowledge of Zion and where it truly is and what the real Zion as opposed to the uh, counterfeit that Satan has put together truly is and led to a greater understanding of the promised land and some other things. I was amazed this week in talking to a lady who says she's 77 and one half years of age. There comes a point where you want to add as much to it as you can instead of take it off. Uh, but she is a blind lady and got hold of some of our tapes, namely, uh, I think, a good part of the Minor Prophets, not all of them, and of the How Exclusive is the Church series. And she has been listening to our tapes since day and night and has been astounded. And it seems that her mind has just simply been opened to what we're understanding and have understood. Uh, she says, you mean the promised land's right here in the good old USA? She says, I came across this and it's incredible what I've come to see. So, just as she's been with uh, Church of the Great God or listening to them, but now she's listening to our tapes as well. And it is astounding. I, perhaps we can get used to it, but someone who comes new upon it, it's like the shades have been opened. You know, we can get used to it, but to them it's, it's refreshing and new. But I want to rehearse a little bit our history as a group uh, and have that in mind as we approach this information that we shall look at shortly. Uh, 
Uh, January was always a big time in radio and worldwide Church of God. I think we're very aware of both good and bad things that happened in January. And it seemed to be a landmark month. Now, it has with us as well. There have been some pretty astounding things that have happened in January. But July has also been an interesting month. Now, I was essentially this fellowship from Church of the Great God over the calendar issue and the division that that might cause in July of 2000. And from that time until the feast, I began to get calls from some of you from across the country, some of you I had never heard of, some I had known a few of you in Church of the Great God, but you wanted to know, where's the feast? And I said, well, I'm going to Zion. I don't plan on starting a group. And I, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I did not want it. I figured there were already plenty of churches. I've said that before. Why start yet another? And yet people kept calling. And I, they said, well, can we come? I said, I'm going to Zion. If you want to come, go ahead. And we wound up with about 70 people there. I'm not sure the exact number, but 70 was pretty close to it. And, uh, and had the feast, and there uh, you asked me to go ahead and be the pastor and to start yet another group, and I agreed to do that. Now that was in September. Well, we had our first radio or telephone transmission on trumpets of 2000. And then we, between July and the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a sudden change in many of your plans, and you decided to come on out. That was done rather quickly. Uh, not much time, a couple months, a little more, from July, and then some of you didn't start calling until August or even September almost, wanting to come. So it was a very short period of time that elapsed from the time that I was gone from CGG until the feast itself had become organized and we had found Tanner and knew where to go, and everything happened in a relatively short period of time. Uh, so from July to there. Now, this July, I have been thinking for quite some time about the possibility of having the feast in a different location than here. Someone came up with the idea to have it up on the East Zion area, and unbeknownst to me, they just began to think about it and put it together and thought that that would be a nice place to go. And I don't remember now just when that was, but it was sometime back June-ish or somewhere in there, I think. It might have been even May, I don't remember. But we, I went up and looked at it, considered it, looked at all the things, and and I just didn't feel quite right about it. There were things that just didn't quite fall into place. Some things did, other things didn't, and the area certainly didn't bother me, being just east of the Zion Gate. Uh, and I thought, well, that might be good. But finally, all things considered, turned my back on it. But I had been intending to go up to another area and look around as a possibility. Now, I think we have known pretty much where the general location of Jerusalem is. It has to be north of Zion, as the scriptures say. 
Uh, and the area that we have looked at, and you're all very familiar with the story, is due north of Zion. Now, some of you believe that to a great degree. Some of you believe it completely. Some of you are skeptical. Whatever. Uh, that doesn't matter. But uh, there are things that do. Now, during this last month, July, we're now on August 4th, but finally, I had been trying to get up to that area that I think Jerusalem or contains Jerusalem for several months, and I couldn't do it. We had sicknesses back east, uh, Tennessee and Ohio and, and so on, that I felt needed my attention and my presence, so I took a trip back to do some visiting and try to encourage some people who were having life-threatening diseases and, and health issues. We came back and we had health issues to deal with here, with Barbara, with Sheila, and of late now even with Dwight, and uh, a lot of hubbub and turmoil in a lot of ways. And uh, I kept trying to get there and didn't seem to be able to. Well, last week, toward the end of July, I was able to go up and spend a couple, three days looking around and do some studying of some various scriptures here the last three or four days to see how things might fit together or what ought to be done or what are we looking at. I, I just wanted to spend some time and uh, have learned, I think, some remarkable things. Now, we have talked about for several years since first understanding that that might be the place in January of 06. We have talked perhaps somewhat idly, uh, several times about, well, why don't we go up to Jerusalem to keep the feast? And I, I never could quite focus on that for some reason. I thought, well, that could be a good thing to do. Maybe we ought to. And then I think of the logistics. There's no services there. There's no motels. There's no hall. There's no this. And I would kind of dismiss it. But over the last seven, eight, nine, ten days, I have had at least four or five people either call or stop me and say, why don't we go up to Jerusalem this year for the feast? And that's been over the, just these last few days. And it was only on these last few days that I had had opportunity to act upon my own thoughts about it. Uh, but people bringing it up spurred me even more to say, i got to go get this done. And it was in the middle of Dwight being sick and, and then dying and everything. And I was working in between trying to help Jackie and him and, and get this done at the same time. It like, it's like for several months it's been prevented. Couldn't get it done. Why? We'll get to that. And I think we can find an explicit reason for that. Now, let's go to Genesis 28. Maybe I'll preface this a little bit as, we, as you turn there with a history of the church because you already kind of get an idea where this is going. Uh, back when Herbert Armstrong started Radio Church of God at the time, uh, they had one feast site. That was at Siegler Springs in Oregon. I've been by. It's a lovely place up in the Cascades. But everybody that was involved with his work at that time was in that general area, so they all went to Siegler Springs. 
Well, then as the radio broadcasts began to uh, enlarge and go across the country, uh, people began to respond. There was a growing number of converts all across the country who wanted to go to the feast. Well, at about that time, uh, the Hammer family, uh, Roy and Buck, uh, had some land there. I think actually Buck may have owned it, although Roy was given a lot of the credit. But uh, they decided to donate a feast site so the people could come. Well, it was central U.S., and uh, Mr. Armstrong said, all right, we'll go to Big Sandy for the feast. So for quite a few years thereafter, the whole church from all the way across the country, even into Canada, would come to Big Sandy, Texas for the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the only feast site on earth. And everybody came there. Then as the church grew, and keep these, keep these thoughts in mind now, until we get to the end of this, because we're going to see some tie-ins. As the church grew, it became difficult to handle that many people. We went from the Redwood Building without ends on it to the Field House, which finally got finished and would hold, I think, around 12,000 people at its maximum, as I recall. I could be off. It might have been 15, but I think it was around 12. Anyway, uh, it got filled until it was overflowing. So, then they decided that God must be placing His name in other places. So, we began to have feast sites at other locations, Squaw Valley, and then it expanded from there. And then it went to overseas locations and came to be what we knew it to be. And it seemed to the church at the time that God was placing His name everywhere. Now, I pose a question, were men placing God's name, or was God placing God's name? Now, maybe he allowed that situation under the circumstances for a reason, and I think that that may be the case. I don't know that he frowned upon it completely, but is it what he intends to always be? In the beginning, was it so? Was that God's intent? And what is his intent now? And I think I can answer those not with my speculation, but with Scripture. Now, how did we go about it? Big Sandy, this was the years after World War II and rebuilding, and there was not much money around People would save their second tithe and still have barely enough, even with gasoline at 15, 16 cents a gallon, to get to Big Sandy. They couldn't, most of them, afford motels, and most could not even afford to eat out. They were in tents. They were in old campers. My dad home-built a trailer. Then he eventually got an old international bus and fixed it up and managed to get it there and back somehow and even to Jekyll Island later. But we mostly lived in tents, and sometimes in Big Sandy, some of you remember, you would have a norther come through. And it would be cold, and it would rain, and people's tents would fill up with rain, and we all smelled about the same after a few days. They did have bathhouses, but with long lines and sometimes cold water, 
And even if you took a bath, your clothes still smelled mildewy, damp, and musky. And no way to get to town and get them clean necessarily, so we all just sort of looked rumpled and smelled about the same. Okay. But we had a wonderful time keeping the feast. And that's the way it was done for quite a few years. Later they built some booths and various things that made it a little handier, but there were still a lot who were camping out, okay? Uh, and then as the country began to prosper again and everybody could afford motels and airline tickets and so on, it changed from that. And then we had what we've known up until the church began to come apart. So let's have that background as well. Now let's go back to Genesis 28, and I want to pick it up in verse 13. And behold, the Eternal stood above it. This is where uh, Jacob was having his dream and uh, wrestled with Christ. And here was his ladder, and he saw the angels of God ascending and descending it. And he said, The Eternal stood above it, above the ladder, and said, I am the Eternal God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon you lie, to you will I give it and to your seed." Now, this was a promise to Jacob. Jacob was to have twelve sons, twelve tribes. So this promise was to all of Jacob's seed, not just the Jews. Okay? To your seed. And your seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now this was an ongoing prophecy that came on down to the end time. Not just Jacob, not just his sons, but to his seed, as he had promised to Abraham, forever. You look at Jerusalem in the, or Israel in the Middle East today, there are less than six million people there. There are almost no Jacobites, very, very few. A few Jews, the preponderance of the population, about 75%. 14% Muslims and a scattering of others. Virtually no one from other tribes. And the earth is not being blessed by that country. Their economic problems are great. Now, they try to act and look prosperous, but only 14.9% of that whole land is arable and only 3% and is in permanent crops. And over half of what they take in economically is loans, gifts, and foreign aid. And they have a huge trade deficit every year. They have not blessed the earth. The land is small. It has almost no natural resources. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole lot about this, but there are a couple of points that are important in hinging this together, or putting it together. Anyway, the land that he gave Jacob here would bless the whole earth. And behold, I am with you and will keep you in all places where you go, and will bring you again into this land. For I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you of. Now we know, historically, that Israel sinned against God. They were taken into captivity. 
first of all, to, to Mitzrayim, the land of Ham. They returned, and later they sinned greatly again. And God said, if you do that, in the end of Deuteronomy 28, 62 or 69, somewhere in there, He says, if you sin again, I will take you into captivity by ship. So wherever they were at that time, they were shipped elsewhere. But God said, I will bring you back again to this land. Now, Israel, the tribes of Jacob, all the tribes of Israel, began to come where? In 1607 as a permanent thing. Now, there had been forays over here back and forth of the Vikings and other people way back. But they began to come here. And, you know, I had taken the view a lot of times, well, maybe at the time Manasseh, Manassites came from all over. Uh, and then once we understood that this truly is Ephraim, not Manasseh, then my mind said, well, God must have selected the Ephraimites from all over Western Europe and just brought mostly Ephraimites here. This scripture makes me wonder if that were the case. This land was settled by the English, the Irish, the Norwegians, and on and on and on it goes. People from all the tribes of Israel came here, didn't they? Now, is this the land that God told was talking to Jacob that he would bring all the tribes all his seed, back to after they had been taken away. This land has blessed the nations of the earth more than any other nation in history. Now it is becoming a curse to them, but for a long time it was their greatest blessing. It became America the land of opportunity and the American dream. Now it is devolving into the American nightmare. And Jeremiah even tells us they're all going to go right back where they came from when it gets as bad as it's going to get here. Now, another element in this story, before we go on, is that we appear to be about to finally see the financial and economic crash, not only of this nation, but perhaps of the whole world. There are think tanks who see a lot of these things coming together as early as September and October of this year. Some think 2013. You can get a lot of different opinions. But those who are observing carefully feel that it is very soon. At the same time, we are ratcheting up the talk of warfare in Iran and perhaps Syria. And... I believe Daniel 8 indicates that just before America falls, we will attack Medo-Persia. We've already done Medo, Iraq. Now Iran, is they call themselves the Persians. That we will go there next. Now just yesterday, Google News said that the Iranians had sent 3,000 snipers into Syria just yesterday to help Assad fight the rebels. Now, everything I read indicates that NATO and the United States are funding and equipping the rebels and want Assad out. And even our politicians say that they want him gone. And here's Iran helping them. Now, do you think that is going to make peace between the United States and Iran? I kind of doubt it. 
and Russian warships are, are, are uh, not necessarily warships, but Russian ships are now amassing off the coast of Syria as well. And Syria and Iran are tied together very tightly. We also have what is becoming the greatest drought in American history, affecting over 50%. Some reports are up to two-thirds. Not severe, but worsening drought, some severe, across this nation that may impact millions and millions of people's food supply in the coming months and year or two. Millions of people starving to death as a result of the crop failures here. And there are other nations as well who are having crop failures, not just America. <coughs> so a lot of things are coming together. And I think that may, that may be crucial to understand when we get to some scriptures a little later on, okay? I must hasten on. Now, regarding the Feast of Tabernacles... I didn't lose my mind here. I, I tied some other things in on purpose because they'll have an impact later on. Let's go to Deuteronomy 12 and uh, pick it up in verse 5. Now, he talks about this, these things here being God's statutes and judgments. And he says, But under the place which the eternal your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even to his habitation, shall you seek, and there you shall come. So God is not only going to choose, he says, a place for God's festivals, he is also going to choose the same place for his habitation, the place that he will live. And we shall see that he meant, when he said this, not only during that time, but eternally. Okay? And then he talks about the feast and coming uh, to go there. When you go, verse 10, over Jordan and dwell in the land which he has given you, and God gives you rest from all your enemies. Verse 11, Then there, there shall be a place which the eternal your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there, there shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your tithes, your heave offering, and so on, and shall rejoice before the eternal your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your manservants, your maidservants, and the Levite within your gates. I have heard outside this group just recently that there are a lot of people saying that Peace of Tabernacles is not a salvational issue, and that, well, only the men have to go up anyway. Well, what does this say? God intended that everyone go. Now, we'll see that if it be too far, and they couldn't do it for reasons that I'll explain, then only the men had to go, because that was the bare minimum. But the family was certainly asked to go, invited, and God wanted them there, if at all possible. I think this makes that very clear. Uh, let's see. Verse 14, But in the place which the Eternal shall choose, in one of your tribes, there, shall you, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Uh, verse 17, You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your corn, and so on, but you must eat them before the Eternal your God in the place which the Eternal your God shall choose. Now, he says this over and over and over again. I'm not going to all the places that he says it, 
because it would take all day. But you, I think, are beginning to get the drift. Verse 21. Oh, let's go to verse 20, first of all. When the Eternal your God shall enlarge your border. That is a very important statement. He didn't say if, he says when. Now remember, when Joshua took them into the land, all the dimensions of the land that they had were given, okay? They would cover a small area, slightly larger than perhaps the Israel that is there today. And in fact, if you take Ezekiel's temple into consideration, because I do believe it has to be rebuilt, or not rebuilt, built for the first time here in the end time, it is bigger than the whole nation of Israel today. That nation over there is at its widest about 50 miles and its longest about 200 miles, and the land area is roughly 10,000 miles, and it's smaller than New Jersey, okay? Uh, You can't fit Ezekiel's temple and the land for the tribes that go with it in Ezekiel. It won't go there. But it goes here from, from the area that I'm thinking of, north and south from Provo to the waters of Stripe, as Ezekiel says, the Colorado River and its rapids, and from almost to the Nevada border to just east of Bryce Canyon. It covers that much area. Now, that's all. That's all they were given. Now, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh also stayed on the east side of the Jordan, wherever the Jordan is. I have some thoughts, but we won't go there today. So, it was roughly big enough for, almost big enough for the dimensions that Joshua gives. Now, that's what he gave them originally, wherever it is. But here, he says, when God enlarges your border... Now, we went into captivity, (coughs) we came back, and where did the tribes of Jacob begin to settle when they were allowed to come back? All of North America, essentially. Canada, the United States, people from all the different nations of Western Europe came to both places, not Mexico so much, but the, the the central and northern part of North America was all settled by Jacobites for the most part. We then began to bring in other Gentile people, some into slavery, some whatever, but it was essentially settled by Jacobites, not just Ephraimites, I now think. So I believe that from that original land that Joshua parceled out, which was the original promised land, God has now enlarged it from sea to shining sea. And this nation has been the greatest blessing to the world that has ever been in terms of food and aid and various things that we have given, even passing out Bibles, as is England. Had you noticed that it says he's going to enlarge it? As he has promised you, and you shall say, I will eat flesh because your soul longs to eat flesh, and so on. Now, verse 21, If the place which the eternal your God has chosen to put his name there be too far from you... Now, it wasn't originally. From anywhere in the original promised land divided out by Joshua, they could by horse, camel, or foot make it to Jerusalem to keep the feast. 
There was no place that was too far. Jerusalem was in the center. And it was not that big a distance. A few days walking, you could be there from anywhere in Israel. Now our border has been enlarged a great deal. And then it became worldwide. And maybe God allowed the feast to be kept in various locations, but it was not His original intent as we shall see. In that case, you could stay and eat those things in your gates, it says at the end of verse 21. So they were to go up to the place which God chose, which we'll address in just a moment. And if it was too far, after their border had been enlarged, then they could do it at home. That is, those, those are the only two things so far I see that are possibilities, even though God may have winked at certain things, even as he did polygamy in the Old Testament. But from the beginning it was not so. So there's some things he allowed for a time and maybe has in this day and age, but is that to continue and how is it to stop and when? We need to answer, and we will today, by Scripture. Chapter 16, verse 16. Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the Eternal your God in the place which he shall choose, and then it lists the three uh, feast times. Uh, Passover season, Pentecost, and the fall festivals. Now, we already talked about enlarging. Let's see, where am I here? Let's go to Deuteronomy 14.22. I've already actually quoted this, but I, well, let's refer to it anyway, beginning in verse 22. You shall eat before the eternity of God in the place which you shall choose. The place is named there, uh, that you may learn to fear the eternity of God always. Verse 24, And if the way be too long for you, so that you are not able to carry it, or if the place be too far, which the Eternal your God shall choose to set his name there, when the Eternal your God has blessed you, blessed by enlargement, blessed by more land, blessed in many ways, then you can't drive your flocks and herds that far. You can turn it into money and go to the place which he shall choose and bestow that money for whatsoever your soul desires for the different things and rejoice there with you and your household. So, again, the family is invited. Now, let's go to 19 and verse 8. Pick up another one here. And if the eternal, it said when back in the other reference, uh, 19.8 And if the eternal your God enlarge your coast as he has sworn to your fathers and give you all the land which he promised to give unto your fathers. So he says, I only gave you part of it. But I intended, obviously, when I spoke to Abraham to give you all of it at some point. And that was not done until the Jacobites began to come back over here permanently in 1607 and thereafter. So this prophecy then began to be fulfilled in our, well, not your and my, but in the modern history. In the history, recent history then of this land, not ancient history of it. Now let's see. Um, 
Let's go back to 1610 just a moment. There was something there I may have overlooked. Is it 10 I wanted? Maybe it was 13 I wanted to start. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days after, you, after the harvest and rejoice in it with your whole family and everybody that has, pertains to you. Seven days shall you keep a solemn feast to the Eternal in the place which the Eternal shall choose because the Eternal your God shall bless you in all your increase and in all the works of your hand. Therefore you shall surely rejoice. That's probably enough of that. Uh, let's pick up one in Isaiah 33. To add to it, uh, Isaiah being obviously an end-time prophecy, Isaiah 33, and here I want verse 20. Let's understand where that place is that God chose. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Your eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down, not one of your stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. So, the, t the place of our solemnities is Zion and Jerusalem, which obviously are together. Uh, we can prove that all through, uh, all through the Bible. There are many, many scriptures on that. I won't go to all of them. I'll just hit a few here. Um, let's see. Second Chronicles 6. I want to touch just a little bit back here because there's some interesting statements made. Second Chronicles 6 and verse 5. Since are they that I brought forth my people out of the land of Mitzrayim, I chose no city among all the tribes of Israel to build and house in, that my name might be there. Neither chose I any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there, and have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So God had not told them of the place that he had chosen, nor had he appointed a king, but here he tells them in no uncertain terms, Jerusalem is the place I have chosen, and I have put David to be king over it. So here he begins to answer the question. Uh, chapter 7, verse 8. Also at the same time Solomon kept the feast seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great congregation from the entering in of Hamath under the river of Mitzrayim. Now, the reason I included this one, and if you read the context, it was obviously in Jerusalem where Solomon was. <coughs> but they came from all over, from the north in Hamath all the way down to wherever Egypt was in the south. Now, a picture of the Middle East comes in your mind, but that may be skewed. But anyway, from a long way away is the point I want to make here, wherever it was. They all came to Jerusalem. His name was not set all over the country. It was set in Jerusalem. Uh, let's see. 8.13. Solomon offered burnt offerings, verse 12, and then even after a certain rate every day, offering according to the commandment of Moses on the Sabbaths 
and on the new moons, and on the solemn feasts, three times in the year, even in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles. So Solomon continued this in Jerusalem where God had placed his name. Uh, 13, verse 13, I think he reiterates that. Let's see. But Jeroboam caused the ambushment to come about behind them, so they were before Judah, and the ambushed, ambushment was behind them. And when Judah looked back, behold, a battle was before and behind, and they cried to the Eternal, and the priest sounded with the trumpets. Uh, that's not the one I wanted. I must have written that down wrong. Let's go to 30. There's plenty of these. It doesn't matter. Chapter 30 of, and verse 13. And there assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very great congregation. So it shows that during those three times they were gathering at Jerusalem. Now this was a case, and I won't go through the whole story, been there before, where Hezekiah woke up as king and realized that the feast had not been being kept. So he decreed that they clean out the temple, that they get the priesthood ready, and that they keep the Passover. Now, they did not have time to do this. It says here somewhere that it came about, oh, here it is in chapter 29, verse 36. And Hezekiah rejoiced in all the people that God had prepared the people, for the thing was done suddenly. It wasn't something that was contemplated, you know, for a year or two, but it was done suddenly. They didn't even have time to get all preparations made before the Passover was to come. So they decided to keep it in the second month instead of the first. That's how suddenly and how quickly this came about. And I say that in part because of what I'm going to say later in this sermon. Uh, we need to be prepared for some sudden changes sometimes. And God does that. And He did honor what was done here. And though they did not keep the Passover in the first month as normal, He did pass on it and agreed to bless them in the second month. And they were so overjoyed to be keeping the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread after it had not been done properly for a long time that they even kept it an extra seven days. No, it would be an extra eight, wouldn't it? Passover plus seven Days of Unleavened Bread. No, no. No, an extra seven. Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread again are seven days complete, not eight. Uh, I don't know whether I use that in the paper or not, but there it is, wherever you run across it. So, it was at Jerusalem, and this came upon it, upon them suddenly. Psalm 78, uh, chapter, I mean, verse 67. Psalm 78, verse 67. Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph, and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth which he had established forever. He chose David also his servant. Now this is just uh, reiterating what we already read. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. And that was the seed of Jacob later. And now we are further down the line. Uh, chapter 79, verse 1. O God, the heathen are come into your inheritance. Your holy temple have they defiled. 
they have laid Jerusalem on heaps. So Jerusalem was then subsequently destroyed. We know from Jeremiah 9.31 and from Isaiah 64 and different places that it was to become a desolation for many generations. That no one would go there but lizards and coyotes or jackals and dragons, whatever you want to use. That it would be that way. Now keep that thought again in mind because it will have some bearing just a little later on here. Uh, but it was Jerusalem, unequivocally, and we'll see that. Now let's go for a moment to the New Testament, Luke 2 and verse 41. I'm not going to turn there, I'll recite it to you, you're familiar with it, but it said that the one then called Jesus, the child and his parents, went up to Jerusalem to keep the Passover every year. So New Testament practice was to go to Jerusalem for the feast, clearly showing that in Christ's day, that place that he had chosen, people went up to keep the feasts in Jerusalem. Now, John 7, I think I will, well, uh, let's see. Go to the book of John, I may want chapter 4 first. Uh, let's go to 4.45 and then to 7. Forty-four. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went to the feast. So that's where he went up to keep the feast. Let's see that again in John 7. Uh, verse 10. <coughs> but when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So he again, here in the context, went up to Jerusalem to keep the feast. And in fact, in verse 37, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. So he was at Jerusalem in the temple, it's easy to prove the temple was in Jerusalem uh, on the last great day of the feast. So the practice of our Savior was to go to Jerusalem, whichever one it was, to keep the feast. He did it habitually, had done it that way all his life. Now, something I never really focused on here in Acts 2, when the church began, it began, they were to tarry, you remember, in Jerusalem until Pentecost. And then when Pentecost was fully come and they were all assembled, the Holy Spirit came in great power. And we've read over this and understood that there were people there from all over the place. But I want to focus on it here for a moment. Uh, verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because of the languages. And verse 8, And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. <coughs> that were gathered at Jerusalem 
to keep the feast, Jews from all over, from many, many nations. In other words, they came to Jerusalem from wherever they were. The way was not too far to even travel from country to country, not just city to city, to get to Jerusalem to keep the feast. Now, if you think that's astounding, hang on just a little while here. Let's go now to Zechariah 14. Here again, we are quite familiar with this, but I don't know that I ever thought of it in quite um, this powerful and majestic a thought. Here, Christ has returned to the earth. Verse 17, or verse 16, It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year. Now, during the time of the tribulation, but especially afterward, or no, during the tribulation, from the time that the abomination is set up in Jerusalem and the church has to flee to a place of safety, uh, all nations will come up against Jerusalem and will take it over, and again it will be polluted. But when that is done and Christ returns after the seven last plagues, everyone that is left of all the nations, most will have died. Over 90%, it appears, of the population of the earth will die by the time the seven last plagues are over. We got, what, roughly six and a half billion now? Ten percent of that, you've still got an awful lot of folks left over. Hundreds of millions of people will survive and go into the millennium. Okay? All those who are left shall go up to Jerusalem from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. We thought we were getting big feast sites when it would have twelve to 15,000. We are talking, brethren, of hundreds of millions of people from all over the entire earth coming to one place, the place which the Eternal chose to put His name to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And if Mitzrayim do not come, they will have no rain. So even the Gentile nations will be coming up to Jerusalem. Now that was God's original intent for the tribes when they came into the land with Joshua. Is that everyone come where he put his name? Now, he may have tolerated something different for a while in Worldwide Church of God because of circumstances and lack of understanding. And we, in good faith, as best we could, kept the feast all over the world. Now, I have trouble believing that God Himself would place His name at Disney World. I have trouble believing He would place His name at Branson or on a cruise ship, or on any of the other places where people go to entertain themselves during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, he said he chose Jerusalem. Now, in a larger sense, we might say the church is Jerusalem, and wherever the church is, maybe they could keep the feast there. And maybe he passed on that. But, in the millennium, it will not be so. In the beginning of Israel, it was not so. In the millennium, it will not be so either. Everyone. Now, 
Bear in mind that the New Jerusalem, which comes down at the beginning of the millennium, is going to be 1,500 miles square at the base. So it's going to be a big place, and it would take hundreds of millions of people. And if, if people reproduce during the millennium, five, six, seven hundred million people left over could easily come up again to billions. God may shove the continents back together. He may allow some kind of public transportation that would allow you to come from thousands of miles away to be able to keep the feast. He says it will be done, therefore he must provide a way. Whether it's wings or trains, I do not know. But he says it will be done. Now maybe he has a non-polluting, completely safe form of transportation in mind. That is open to speculation. What is not open to speculation is that all people of all the nations which are left on earth when Christ returns will all come to Jerusalem to keep the feast. I understood that, but I didn't understand the numbers. Incredible. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth, the whole earth, <clears throat> that they, uh, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up, and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Eternal will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast. So first of all, no rain. Then if you still are stubborn, plagues will come upon you. And one day you're going to say, I'm going to Jerusalem to keep the feast. You may be stubborn, you may be hard-headed, but God says, wherever you are on earth, this you shall do. Or die. You have a choice. Go to the feast of Jerusalem or die. That's what it'll be. Why will you die, O Israel, Ezekiel 33 says. Um, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness to the eternal. Everything, even the jingle of horses, is going to spell out this is metaphor to some degree, I'm sure. Holiness to the eternal. Everything is going to be in peace and in accord and everyone thinking and doing the same thing. <coughs> That's the point he's making. Everything will be holiness to the eternal. And the pots in the eternal's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. <coughs> yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness to the eternal of hosts. Everyone who cooks, everyone who sacrifices... We're going to be doing it to the glory of God. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the eternal of hosts. Well, now he just told all the land that they were to come. What do you mean there'll be no more Canaanites there? What Paul said, we're neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, we're all one in Christ. They'll all be part of the house of Israel, grafted in. So there'll be no more Gentiles in terms of religion. There may still be races, but they'll all be merged into one spiritually. So that there's one church, one belief, 
one God. And everybody comes to worship God at the Feast of Tabernacles. And three times in the year. It just emphasizes Feast of Tabernacles here, but the original command was for all three. So I think there must be some kind of very rapid transportation involved to get people from all over the earth there. Okay? We'll end speculation on that at this point. Now, we need to go back to Zechariah to understand and put all this into context. Now, you will remember the Zechariah 4 and verse 14, speaking of the two anointed ones that stand by the eternal of the whole earth, is only mentioned one other place, and that's in Revelation 11.4, where it's speaking of those two witnesses at the end of the age, okay? So, the context here in Haggai and Zechariah, when it's speaking of the remnant end-time church, we all know this, we've been there in the Minor Prophet series, that those two anointed ones, sons of oil, as it says here in my margin, will have the remnant of the church gather to them. Okay? Uh, we won't go through the whole series again, but understand that the book of Haggai is talking about them as well, and the remnant of the people will be stirred to come and build the temple at Jerusalem, and there is where God is going to ultimately bring peace and blessing. So, that is the story of Haggai. And then we get into Zechariah. And it's the same story in detail. Uh, let's go down to... Well, let me give a brief overview. Zechariah starts out by saying, Don't be like your fathers. Uh, they didn't hearken to the prophets. They stoned the prophets. Uh, listen. Be all ears. Hear what I am about to say here in this book. My words, my statutes, my commandments, uh, they took hold of your fathers because they broke them, in verse 6. And he didn't want it to happen to us here in the end time. Because this is an end time scripture, if ever there is any. Now, he talks about how he was sorely displeased with the heathen who came in and destroyed the church, verse 14. Uh, he's asked when he'll have mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, back up in verse 12. Uh, through the captivity we've been in and the Babylon that's had its clutches on us and so on. So he says, I was very displeased with the heathen that are at ease, a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. So he was, he was a little displeased with worldwide, but then the heathen came in and he became sorely displeased. <coughs> heathen would have been Tkach, Raider, Stavronides, ad nauseum. Therefore, verse 16, thus says the Eternal, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, says the Eternal of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Now, those, there are those who will argue that it is only the spiritual temple to be built, and I think Haggai proves that not to be the case. Now, the spiritual temple is above, far and beyond, a physical temple, uh, and the church has to, in spiritual glory, outdo what we did before in worldwide. Okay? We have to do better. And that's one of the main reasons I preach the way I do. Because God says we have to raise the standard and live up to it, and we have trouble with that, don't we? But he says, I will return with mercies, and I'll build it. Now, how do you prove that it's also not just a spiritual, but a physical temple? 
Because the people will say it's not time to build the temple. And I've used this before. You will not find a church member in whatever organization or no organization who would say it's not time to build a spiritual temple. They will all say to a man or woman, <coughs> of course it's time to build a spiritual temple. The temple is our body. The temple is the church. Everybody would say it's time to do that. But Haggai says here in the end, about the time the two witnesses and the remnant come on the scene, the people will be saying it is not time to build the temple. That's the church. But it is. The spiritual first and foremost. But there has to be a physical. And Ezekiel's temple is it. It's the only one mentioned in the Bible other than the heavenly Jerusalem that has not been built in history or even attempted to be built. And the only time frame possible to build it is between now and the time the heavenly Jerusalem comes down at the beginning of the millennium. So it has to be done, okay? Now he says a line will be stretched on Jerusalem. He tells the two witnesses in Revelation 11 to measure the altar <coughs> and then the worship therein first, leave out the court of the Gentiles temporarily. <coughs> Excuse me. And get that done. Now, let's go on down to Zechariah. Let's see. I want to get to verse 17. Cry yet, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad. They aren't there now. We don't even know where the cities of Judah were in the original promised land. We will find out shall yet be spread abroad, and the Eternal shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Now that's interesting, is it not? He chose Jerusalem a long time back. We already read that. Why does it yet need to be chosen again? Hasn't it always been chosen? Now there's where the rub comes. Because God said the true Jerusalem and the real promised land would be desolate for many generations. Now, if that one has been there all along and has been the true one, when was it ever not chosen? It had the walls knocked down a few times over there, but it was never desolate. There were always people there. Even Nebuchadnezzar left people there to take care of it and appointed a governor over them, Gedaliah, which the Jews themselves killed, and so on and so forth. There is no time when that city has been left desolate. Keep that thought in mind. He shall yet choose Jerusalem. There's a time then when it may not have been chosen because no one even knew where it was and it did not exist. It had been knocked down, destroyed, and hidden so that no one would know where it was and no one would go there but jackals and lizards. We'll see that verified in a moment. <clears throat> then I lifted up my eyes and saw, behold, four horns, and these are the ones that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Uh, I could name some that I think might fit very well there. A couple of Tkachas, a Raider, uh, a Albright, uh, Snippert, various ones. I don't know which four it would be, but uh, that ilk anyway. And the Eternal showed me four carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spoke, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah. So the old man did lift up his head. <coughs> but these four 
are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, their power, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So, he says, four, basically we're involved in destroying the church, because this is all about the church here in this context. Now, there'll be four who rebuild it. Four carpenters to put it back together. So, I think when this comes down, it's going to be principally four men who lead the charge. Whether that's two of them or the two witnesses or it's four others, I do not know. It does not say. We know that the remnant is going to come and build under the directorship of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses. But it doesn't say exactly who these are. If you go to chapter 6, all down about verse 14, the crown shall be to Helam, to Tobijah, to Jediah, and to Hen, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial in the temple of the eternal. Mentions four people there in addition to the two. So maybe those are the four that it speaks of and who they might be in the end time remains to be seen. But it is going to be rebuilt. I lifted up my eyes again and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, where do you go? Or where go you? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. Now, if it's got to be built again, it's got to be measured to see how big it should be, where it should be. I found an interesting site this past week. I don't know whether it's a ruin or not, but incredibly, I stepped it off. Just wanted to see what it was. I'm not going to say any more than that. Uh, Nehemiah kept his mouth shut when he went to measure Jerusalem to build the walls. Who knows? may not be the exact place of the city, but <clears throat> it's got to be fairly close to there because I think we do have the correct hill of Jerusalem found. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. He said, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle. So, it will begin as a series of villages or towns with men and cattle there, here in the end time. For I, says the Eternal, will be under a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So this is saying it's going to be in a time when there is great danger. And God will have to do the protecting, otherwise it will be knocked out. People ask me, well, where's that wall of fire out there around Anatov, boy? Well, it's not here because we haven't been in any danger. But when Jerusalem is focused, there will be great danger. And God will have to separate the situation from the rest of the world and protect his people. And it will have much men and cattle. And he says, Ho, come forth, flee from the land of the north, Babylon, the land around us, where you have been spread abroad as the four winds of the heaven. The whole system of Babylon is around the earth and the church has been scattered worldwide but particularly in the U.S. and Canada where the most of the church was. Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. He tells us in Micah 4 to leave the city, go dwell in the wilderness and in the field. We know those scriptures. But I'm reiterating it here because I'm coming down to a point. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, After the glory has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. He's speaking here of the faithful remnant and their leadership <coughs> as being the apple of his eye. And he is not going to allow the apple of his eye to be damaged. 
For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil in their, to their servants, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. So Christ is going to come and dwell in the midst of this when he sets up Jerusalem, the one during the time of the remnant church and the witnesses. And many nations shall be joined to the eternal in that day. Many peoples <coughs> shall be my people who come from all over the earth, a faithful remnant. And I will dwell in the midst of you, and you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me to you. Now notice this. And the eternal shall inherit Judah, his portion, in the holy land. So God, Christ is going to be dwelling with his people in the holy land. Uh... His portion, or, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Now we saw up here a little earlier, he's going to yet choose Jerusalem. Here he says, I will choose Jerusalem again. So it went by the wayside somehow, did it not? And has to be refound, remeasured, rebuilt, and rechosen. Daniel 9 tells us that there will be 70 weeks in that entire prophecy from the time the command is given to build Jerusalem after the temple has already been built, and then the abomination will be set up, and we flee to a place of safety, okay? So it doesn't exist today. It has to be found, it has to be measured, it has to be in Judah, the true Judah, let him... Who is in Judea, let him who reads understand, flee to the mountains, Matthew 24. This is something that is beyond the comprehension and understanding of most people. But it tells you right here who will be on board when it happens. The two witnesses and the remnant church. So this focus, this prophecy, is for now. The next few months, years. I mean now. Not 50 years from now, not 100 years from now, but in the present time. That's why it's important to see the leaves coming on the trees of what's happening in the world. It's important to understand we're about to go into Iran and break their horn and then get our horn broken. It's important to understand this drought is part of the coming plagues and death and destruction upon our land. And the... the in time, Remnant Church is going to be called together very shortly then, as are the two witnesses to come on the scene. That's when this will be done. And Jerusalem shall be chosen again. God may have looked aside, like he did with polygamy, as I said, or other things. But he's going back to his original intent. And once it is found, measured, and built, it will be chosen again, and <laughs> when Christ comes, <coughs> the whole earth will come there to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Then he says in verse 13, Be silent, O all flesh, before the Eternal, for He is raised up out of His holy habitation. He's telling the whole world, you better shut up and pay attention, because Christ is about to do something. Now let's understand even more fully 
This kind of made the chills go up and down my back when I read it, read it this morning. <clears throat> and he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the eternal. Now Joshua here is indicated as the high priest at the end time. If you go back to Ezekiel 40 to 48, it talks about rebuilding Jerusalem and you have a high priest there to oversee it and to oversee the priesthood and to make sure everything is done right. So it all fits together. Now, notice, this high priest, whoever he is, standing before the angel of the eternal and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So when this happens... The context, we're talking about choosing Jerusalem yet again, aren't we? We're talking about Christ rising up to take care of his, out of his holy habitation and to focus on Jerusalem. Now, there's a curious thing that is said right here. Satan is standing there to resist. When? Exactly when? Okay? The Eternal said to Satan, the Eternal rebuke you, O Satan, even the Eternal that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So the time that God chooses Israel again as at the time that is revealed to this high priest Joshua. Now he could have said, the Eternal that created the heavens and the earth, he could have said the eternal that delivered Israel out of Egypt. He could have said the eternal that died on the stake. He could have said the one that started the church in Acts 2. He could have said a lot of different things. But he nails it down to a specific event at a specific moment. And says... The same Lord that has chosen Jerusalem again, as we saw a few verses back. So, Satan has got a counterfeit Middle East, a counterfeit Jerusalem, a counterfeit temple, a counterfeit Jewish people who say they are Jews and are not. <coughs> the world is convinced that that is the true Jerusalem. Satan has pulled off his greatest deception. And God is going to reveal, again, the true Jerusalem. And he is going to reveal it to people here in the end time. And when it comes up, Satan is going to resist. Satan is going to try to stop it. He will not want it to be allowed Even the Eternal that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? So, whoever God chooses to do this job and to reveal Jerusalem to is going to be a brand plucked out of the fire. Now, when you put sticks or logs in the fire, they start burning up. And they burn in the middle and then you have these ends that stick out. So this individual, whoever it is, is one who was in the fire. Now whether that means the fire of tribulation, or whether it means Gehenna fire, is not clear, but neither of those is desirable. Okay? 
So whoever this was had some serious problems. Serious problems. Going into the tribulation or the lake of fire, one of the two or maybe both. And Satan had a good case against him, whoever he is. Let that sink in. A sinner. Someone who had problems. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. A lot of sin. And stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke to to those that stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments and you know the rest of the story. But God is apparently revealing this to someone who was not John the Baptist or Moses or Daniel or whoever, but someone who had problems, okay? So expect that when you see this. But God is going to choose Jerusalem yet again. And that has been his intent all along. So what he may have passed on in the past is indeed in the past as his polygamy. And he is choosing it again, and he is going to reveal it to someone that Satan has a case against and who will resist. Now, we do not try to identify who we're speaking of here, but I'll say this much. You have the knowledge of Haggai and Zechariah, and virtually no one else on earth understands these books. We know a lot of things that other people in the church do not know. That has been revealed to us in spite of ourselves. And we know where the true Zion is. And I also know that the true Jerusalem has to be north of it and not very far from it, wherever it is. Now, Herbert Armstrong used to say, If you have knowledge, it is of no use to you unless you act on it. And he has said, if you do not use the knowledge that you have, God will take it away from you. I therefore feel that I have to act on the knowledge I have to the very best of my ability, lest I displease God and lest the knowledge be taken away and lest I be held accountable for something that I knew about and did not do. Now, I had thought about going to this place before and kind of dismissed it, thinking, well, the logistics are hard and so on. But it came into focus in July, and I made a decision to do it within July. This is now August 4th. And several of you have come to me in the last two weeks, or less, actually, and said, why don't we go to Jerusalem? So God moved some of you to say the same thing. So you're in it too, you who spoke. And some others may have thought it and didn't say anything, I do not know. But it has come, in a sense, rather suddenly, as we read in Second Chronicles 29. We are going to keep the feast at the site I am relatively certain is the site of the original Jerusalem that has been lost and has been desolate for many generations.
and God has now brought our focus onto it. I believe He has chosen it yet again, just as the world is about to come apart. And I think we will have less emphasis on this place, Anatoth. I think the emphasis is going to begin to change over the next months and time to that of Jerusalem. Let him who reads understand. It isn't something that the normal average person would know. But you know, and I know. And I think that is very clearly the reason that we have been having more sickness, more death, more gossip, more backstabbing, more bad attitudes around here than I can remember in 12 years, all in the last few months. I do believe that this scripture is very critical to this because I think Satan is seeing something about to be revealed that he hates with all his heart. And it is going to strip the veneer off his counterfeit. Therefore, he is doing his utmost to destroy us right now. Now, some of us have speculated maybe Satan's after us. Some have speculated maybe it's the leadership. Well, maybe in part it is. Maybe in part it is. And I certainly have been a sinner. And I certainly have offended some of you over the years. I'm asking you to forgive me for any offenses that I have caused. And you are bound to do that. Because if I ask you to, God says you have to do it up to 70 times 7. So I ask for it. And I mean it. Because inevitably I have offended many people in the last 12 years, and in the past 68 for sure. Now can we do as God says? Can you forgive me my trespasses? I preached long and hard that we need to do this to each other. Now I ask you, forgive me for whatever I've done that may have offended you. Let's not let Satan win this thing. Let's not let him destroy us. Let's understand that God is choosing Jerusalem again and that his focus throughout the rest of the end time is going to be there. And there will be much men and cattle and there will be villages built and there will be a temple built and there will be Jerusalem built so that it can have the abomination set up in it. These things are going to happen soon. This nation is going to be taken into captivity soon. And God is going to have to protect us. Now, who is going to do this, brethren? I'm not trying to toot your horn, mine, or anybody else's. But if God gave us this knowledge... We are the only ones who can do it. No one else can. And would he have given it to us, did he not intend us to do it? And if he intends us to do it and we don't do it, we have to answer to him. Knowledge is of no use unless it is used. 
I am going up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles where I, to the best of my knowledge, Jerusalem is. We already changed the day to day because I misunderstood something about Greenwich time. Now we're changing the location because that has been God's intent all along. And I thought about it. Is all this trouble coming because God does not yet want us to go to Jerusalem? Is Satan, or is God trying to prevent it by all this sickness and death and trouble and trials and tribulations we've had lately? No. God's command is, I'm going to choose it again, and when you understand it, you better go do it. The only way I can read it. So it is His will and intent that those who understand do it. And it is Satan who hates it. It is Satan who's trying to prevent it. It is Satan who is trying to destroy any and every one of us by turning us one against the other. And you against me, and me against you, and all of us against each other. Satan is the destroyer. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And we have let him use us, brethren, all of us. We must stop it, and we must win. Now, God says here that we're going to win. He says if we'll diligently obey him, back in chapter 6 where he addresses this same thing, these things shall happen. So he looks at it positively. So, he, in his mind, expects us to react positively, to fight Satan off, draw near to God so that Satan will flee from us, and not let Satan destroy us at this juncture in time, because I think we're speaking of a direct prophecy that needs to be fulfilled and fulfilled now. Because the world is about to come apart. All these things are about to come to pass. Satan is going to fail in his attempt that he is trying to do to us. And he's going to have one more try at it. When he's cast down the day the tribulation starts and the temple is defiled, he's going to come after us with all fury and all the armies of the earth chasing us to the place of safety. So he's trying now, and he's going to get one more shot at it. I pray that we all be accounted worthy to escape now and then. Now we're going to get a tent, like we used to do in Big Sandy, big enough to meet in. We can get porta-potties. Some can stay in motels in Cedar City. Some will want to camp in tents and trailers they may have. And it's only two miles off a highway with good road that you can, even old people, drive with their cars. The place that I found that is very near where Jerusalem had to be. So, it's come upon us, in a sense, rather suddenly, just like it did in 2000, to do what should be done. Now, it's up to you. But we'll make arrangements, and I am going up to Jerusalem to keep the feast.